whether you're just passing through and visiting family for the fourth or whether you're looking for a new home, thanks for being here. One quick note, uh, my name is Aaron Campbell. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeeming Grace Church. Our lead pastor, Matt Rawlings, is with his family, visiting family, up in Virginia this weekend. Um, They will be back with us next week. I want to thank you not only for this morning, but in advance for your prayers for those of us on the Dominican Republic mission trip. Um, just thanks. Thanks that you would partner with us in that way. Thanks for those, uh, so many who have already partnered financially as well, um, just to support the work uh, as we seek to go and share God's love and His good news with those that we encounter. Just uh, um, one or two other personal mentions, uh, prayer requests. Um, the one Mario mentioned with humility and conflict, uh, especially for Mario and I, we're sharing a room, so if you could, that's where that one particularly will come into play. Um, also, Mario and I are going to be having opportunities most of the evenings to be speaking. I'm doing some workshops, uh, both in Santiago and then a smaller village church about an hour and a half from there. Um, so we would value your prayers. Uh, I would value just this week in preparation because that's when a lot of it has to happen. So we'd greatly appreciate you continuing to partner with us um, this week and next week as we travel and for praying for those that we go to serve. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to come together, the freedoms that we do enjoy, to be able to worship you without fear, without threats, to look at your word together, to proclaim your name. Lord, for as long as these liberties last, we praise your name. Thank you for this privilege. Would you open our ears as we come to your word this morning? Would you help us to hear your voice? The things that I say that do not align, would you throw away? Would you help us to quickly move past? And would you help what you would have for us to stick into our hearts, to become part of our lives, that we might honor you as you deserve? In your great name we pray, Jesus. Amen. And well, I grew up as the oldest of four boys. Had a lot of activity in our house, and I was always, well, like now, on the huskier side, is what they called it, with the little boys' clothes. And so I have, uh, I've broken a few bones over my years, just not of my own. <laughs> Injuries requiring casts and stitches were ones that I helped others achieve, not ones that I suffered myself. However, one of my, uh, of my own personal childhood injuries, the one that stick out, there were two impalements that, uh, were the memorable things from my childhood of injuries. First was when I was in fourth grade and we had a few chickens and a turkey with no neck feathers, which was fairly intimidating to individuals that were roughly the same height. Um, one time I was hopping into the pen over the fence, didn't see that there was a broken two by four with a nail sticking up and hopped right onto it on my heel. It became embedded in my foot until my cries (laughs) arose, unable to really go anywhere with a two by four attached to my foot. The other instance was a year or two later. When I was playing in the creek that bordered our yard, it had rained hard the night before and the creek was twice its usual speed and volume and it was a dark, muddy brown. It still wasn't very deep. It was just a small runoff stream. It was shallow enough for me to be doing the crab walk in until I felt a sharp pain in my hand. And pulling up my hand revealed the source of the pain to be a large, rusty wire protruding from it. 
Both of these occasions, Dad was at work, wouldn't you know? Mom was the blessed angel that came to my rescue, speaking peace in my panic, pulling out the foreign objects and beginning to administer peroxide and clean it up. When the initial panic wore off, my thoughts turned to letting Dad know what had happened. With each of these events, I had very different responses. With my foot, I was entering the chicken pen to feed the birds and collect eggs. I, I should have been wearing shoes. For reasons beyond rusty nails, when one enters a chicken coop, <laughs> shoes should be worn. But other than that bit of foolishness, I was doing something I was supposed to be helping with. I had no concern regarding letting Dad know I expected sympathy and care, which I did receive to the degree that it happened to be the, the fair week in our little town, which was and still is a big deal. Uh, it's, it's the pride of Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, the largest fair in Pennsylvania, over 236 acres. You should really check it out. Crowds coming up to 137,000 people a day, up to 700,000 for the week, in a town whose population is ten to 15,000, depending on whether the university is in session or not. Even though it was the last week of September, always the last week of September, uh, we got the whole week off of school because everything shut down for the Bloomsburg Fair. That and the first day of buck season. We were a little rural. In both cases because the teachers were as likely not to show as the students But I experienced care for my dad that week, even having him borrow a wheelchair from work and wheeling me around the fairground so I could still get my funnel cake. With my hand injury, I had asked dad before he left for work that day if I could play in the creek. And he had said no, which was rather short-sighted. He said that the water was too dirty and fast, cautions I was sure were more for the benefit of my younger brothers than for me. So I waited till he left and asked mom, not revealing that dad had already said no, convincing her that it would be fine. So after she removed the wire and mentioned needing to check with dad about when my last tetanus shot was, I inquired about the shot and let her know that lockjaw and death seemed like reasonable risks rather than bothering dad with something so trivial. <laughs> Revealing my disobedience to dad and my deception to mom, which sealed my fate as the one who would let dad know what happened when he got home and provide for me one of those life lessons where you learn a lot even though no formal teaching takes place. With my foot during fair week, I had done something foolish, but I awaited my dad's return with no fear. I was confident that he would care for me in my recovery. With my hand harmed by my disobedience, I dreaded dad's return. I was ashamed for him to find out not really so much that I hurt myself, that seemed really inconsequential at the moment. It was the fact that I went against his word. He was the last person I wanted to see that evening. Friends, our Lord is returning at a day and an hour appointed by the Father. And each of us will have either confidence at his coming or we will be shrinking back in shame. In the passage we are about to read, John wants his readers to have confidence when the Lord appears. But he also wants his readers to have something more. Would you turn with me to 1 John chapter 2? Continuing our series there, we're going to read the very end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3. A few weeks ago, right before Renew, James Nysong gave the last message out of 1 John. 
where he was giving warnings about false teachers, about antichrist, to be on our guard. It ended with the words, abide in Christ. And that's where we pick up now the next verse, verse 28, 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Well, the main idea this morning is that abiding in Jesus today leads to confidence when he appears. Abiding in Jesus today leads to confidence when he appears. The only action that John implores his readers to in this passage, the only thing that he says, do this, is abide in him. Abide in Him. That's the only statement in these verses with a direct command, a direct do this attached to it. Now the reason He says to do this, the payoff, the goal in abiding is so that we have confidence at His appearing. Which I think we would all agree are stakes which couldn't be higher. Uh, There are only two options. As John lays it out, There won't be indifference on that day. When He returns, when we face judgment, no one will have an I don't care attitude. There will even be confidence, even excitement and rejoicing from the anticipation of His expected return or there will be dread. There will be recoiling. It will either be the best day ever for you or the worst day ever. And John's goal is that his readers have confidence on that final day. Now, Scripture gives multiple pictures of what his return, what his judgment will be like. We see this in Revelation chapter 6, a fleeing from the coming judgment. Chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth... And the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? What a terrible predicament. To see and to know He is coming and suddenly be faced with the reality of your sin and the presence of His holiness. They're not gearing up for a fight. Nobody's cocky in this moment. Nobody's defying God. The only response is to run and to hide, to cry for the mercy of rocks and mountains to be thrown upon you. Many posture and boast now of their hatred for God, their lack of need for Him or His grace. The friends of day is coming on every one of their knees will bow 
when every one of our tongues will confess that He is Lord. There is not a single tongue on heaven, on earth, under the earth, that will not be proclaiming His praises on that day. They won't be proud or defiant on that day. When they come face to face with Him and realize who He truly is, the reality is they, they won't even need God to pronounce a judgment. When they see Him, they'll know. The reality will hit them. They are guilty. They're undone. Even as Isaiah the prophet was undone when seeing the Lord in the temple, he had no response but to hit the deck, to cry out for mercy. How will it be for those that have blasphemed His name, who have rejected His grace? All hope is gone. They'll know the judgment before it comes from His lips. They won't need it to be proclaimed. They know they have no defense, and yet they will hear his verdict. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus describes the day of judgment where all mankind is gathered before him and he separates the righteous from the unrighteous as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And as the sentence of judgment will then be issued for all the unrighteous to depart from him and to enter the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. While the righteous are invited to eternal fellowship with the Father, into His joy, into their rest, into the place that He has prepared for them from the foundation of the world. Such is the judgment between the righteous and the unrighteous. This is not a scenario that anyone can risk going into with shame or fear be in a position of needing to shrink back from. To just add even another level of sobriety, even for believers who will be saved, all who trust in Christ will be saved. The reality is all will not have the same level of confidence when He returns. There will be those on that day that experience regret, recognizing squandered opportunities, rewards that have been forfeited, to the degree that Paul calls it, calls it suffering loss. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I don't know about you, to me that's a sobering reality. So John lets us know that we can be confident at Christ's appearing by abiding in Him now. He wants us to know we we don't have to wait 
until that final day to know what kind of verdict we will hear we can know today we can have confidence today that there is no reason to shrink away from him no reason to be ashamed if we abide in him now he has told us a couple of times in chapter 2 already to abide in him yet the way that the next few verses flow it seems almost like john just writes out abide in him so that you may have confidence and then he just realizes that this isn't enough i I need to tell them more I, i i think He's almost anticipating questions that are going to arise, like if abiding in him is what gives confidence when he appears, then how can I be sure that I'm abiding? So John pauses. And though he doesn't add to the action of abiding, he doesn't add anything else that he's telling us we must do, he wants to reassure us. He wants to pull back the picture, make sure we understand, that we know what abiding looks like. Why it gives us confidence. Because John isn't content that his readers just survive the fire. He wants them to be confident every day leading up to that final day. He doesn't want to just sum up the importance of abiding because you'll either have confidence or shame without also making sure that we know if we are indeed ourselves abiding. After all, with stakes this high, you don't want to wait to the end and just hope you won't need to shrink back. You want to know now that you'll be confident on that day. And so John's tender, fatherly affection that we see even in his greeting. This isn't just what he's using at the beginning of this letter as he's calling us again, dear children. This is something throughout He keeps peppering in this letter. He wants us to hear that affection, that tender care he has for his readers. It makes him double back around now and make sure we know what abiding looks like and what gives it its potency. It's like he is seeing the unsure faces in the congregation he's writing to, thinking things like, well, I want to be confident in that day and I think I'm, I'm, I'm trying to abide. But how do I know? How do I know if I really am? How can I know if I'm abiding enough? What's the abidometer? What about all the pesky questions that I I struggle with, the doubts that come into my mind from time to time? Is he real? Am I serious enough about my faith? Do I really believe all of this? Will he condemn me just for asking questions like this? Did messing up last weekend disqualify me? Did the problems and difficulties in my life mean that God is upset with me? If I have questions and doubts like this, just now, hearing Paul's letter, how can I ever have confidence if I am standing face to face with the righteous judge of all the universe? I think John knows his readers. He knows what our hearts are like. And so he doesn't move on too quickly. He pauses. He wants his readers to abide and have confidence at Christ's coming. But not just on that final day. He wants us to be sure now that we will have confidence at his appearing. I kind of... Kind of even in his response, the way that he's writing this, almost picture him not at all. I mean this in the best sense of the word, like like a doting parent who, you know, you're going on vacation with and you show up at your rental house. They're already there. And you realize on the drive you've forgotten your eardrops for your child and you need them that night. Dad, of course, the expert, lets you know that the only place that's going to be open at this time is at Walgreens, cross town on 2nd Maple. 
So as you grab your keys and your wallet and you're about to head out the door, you realize he's not done yet. He proceeds to tell you how, well, you know, you know you have to take the first right to get on the highway. And then you'll know you're on the right road when you pass the McDonald's and that chicken place your mom really likes. And right after you pass that weird statue, I don't even know why they call that art, but right after you get there, you're going to turn right and there's the Walgreens right there. Because his goal isn't just that you have confidence that you're a rival. He wants you to know all along the way that you're right where you should be, that you're on the right road, that this is taking you where you want to go. He's as interested in you being certain all along the drive as much as he is that you have confidence when you get there. So he's compelled to give you key landmarks along the way. That's the sense I get from John in these final five verses in our passage. Because abiding in Jesus today leads to confidence when he appears. So I think first he just starts to open up with what does abiding look like? I think that's something he's trying to answer in these next few verses and the examples he gives. I think first it, it's, it's something that's visible in action, in actions. We see whether we are abiding or not by visible means. It's not something that's hidden or just felt and Do I feel it now? Do I not? I already said that this isn't the first time John is mentioning abiding even in this chapter. A few verses earlier in chapter 2, for instance, verse 3, he was talking about abiding, relating with God. and says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments, which, which are summed up in knowing God. And loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's the summation of the commandments. It says that this is how you know. If you know him, if you're abiding with him, if you're relating with him, you'll keep his, his commandments. His commandments to love God. His commandments to love one another. In verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So what we see before we even get to our passage, that abiding is walking as he walked. It's obeying his commands to love God and one another. That's what John said a few verses earlier. Now, in these verses, he echoes that reality, that same truth, those same standards of what abiding looks like when he points out in verses 29 that if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. In other words, you know, if, if keeping the commandments was the standard, was the thing that let us know that indeed we were abiding in Him, knowing Him, well, He's righteous. If, if we've been born of Him, then we're going to practice righteousness. It's something that can be seen and observed. And... Chapter 3, verse 3, our last verse. He talks about, And everyone who puts, who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So it can also be seen as, as we seek, as we put our hope in him and thereby purify ourselves. Abiding isn't some mystical flowing or moving in the spirit that's that's just intangible we don't really know if it's happening or not it's practical it's visible it's purifying your yourself as you hope in him it's allowing his righteousness to motivate you to practice righteousness it's keeping his commandments to love god and others it's it's seen in how we live every day walking as he walked reflecting Him. That's what it looks like to abide in Him. So the question for us is, what do our lives display? Do they display that reality that we are relating with Him? Is it visible? Is there evident love for God? 
Is there evident love for others? Does our walk more reflect the world around us? Or does it reflect the righteous one who has given us new birth and we are seeking to reflect and honor in our lives by purifying ourselves, by practicing righteousness? Now, I just want to be real clear because we use words like purity, purify, righteousness, and these are intimidating words. I don't know about you, but for me, I instantly know, well, I'm not pure. I'm not righteous. And that's why I think he uses the words practicing righteousness. Purifying ourselves. Practicing means it's not perfect yet. It's something we seek to continue to work at. It's a growth. Purifying ourselves, well, that by the very definition means that we're impure. And so there's this continual need for more work to make us more and more like Him. It's not something where we've already arrived. It's not something where we are perfect. The very idea that He's bringing out is is these are things in progress. It's a work that's ongoing. The question is, is there progress? Is there growth? Well, if there is growth, if there is progress, that's one of the things that, that John is saying. That, that, that shows the abiding. That is to give us confidence. Not that we've arrived, that we're growing. That we see that, that today I'm still moving in the right direction. No, I'm not there yet. I'm not going to be there until he returns. But I'm moving in the right direction. And from that, I can have confidence. These are the things that John wants us to see. Growth equals confidence. The goal is growth, not perfection. Abiding isn't some strange, secret, hidden for most of us that just a few super Christians have realized, abiding is the Christian life. Number two, abiding is relating with God and receiving life from Him. It's understanding that, that we're not just talking about improvement for improvement's sake or improvement for a set of rules or regulations. We're talking about relating to a person. That's what John is highlighting in these verses. It's valuing Him and loving Him and being transformed by Him. It's not something mysterious or magical that's only available to level 7 Christians, okay? For those who are guests, we don't believe they're different levels. Um, But I think we can feel that way at times, don't we? We feel like everybody else, or at least this group over here, they've got the corner on the market. I wish they'd share what it is that helps them get through life each day so well. First of all, we need to know that their life isn't as great. They're thinking the same thing too. And if you don't believe me, start asking. Because I think this idea that, that we have folks that are just amazing Christians and have no problems is really one of our biggest hindrances. Because we are continually discouraged about how I'm not doing as well as so-and-so. And we're all thinking the same thing. We're all aware of our shortcomings. And we need one another to be speaking God's truth and grace into our lives. And so, let's have no illusions, no pretending we're better than what we are. But to be honest and real and to say where we need help, where we need prayer... Where I've messed up and can you hold me accountable? These things will serve us all. Because we're all fallen sinners in need of God's grace. That's our qualifier. None of us have arrived. That's why we're all here today. Not to celebrate, pat ourselves on the back, how great we are. It's because we have a God who's great and he's worth worshiping because he has saved the lot of us.
Abiding in Him is recognizing that our relationship with Him, that is the source. He is the source of our strength. He is our hope. He is our help. And relating to Him and relating with Him helps us make sense of everything else. Abiding in Jesus isn't about connecting with some magical force or adhering to a particular code of conduct. It's about relating with a person. It's about relating with the God of the universe. It's about relating with the one who loved you so much he left heaven and all its glory to come here and to be abused and beaten and killed for you. To bring you into relationship with himself, with his father. It's a relationship. That's what abiding is. It's knowing Him. It's loving Him. It's being loved by Him. That's what verses 29 and 3 3 highlight. Yes, there are actions on our part of practicing righteousness, of purifying ourselves, but each of those, if you notice, each of those flow out of relating to Him. We purify ourselves when we hope in Him who is pure. It's our hope in Him, the pure one, that gives us the motivation and the ability to purify ourselves. We practice righteousness because we have been born of the one who is righteous. Because we're born of Him. That's how we can practice righteousness. It's not because we're trying hard enough. Or maybe next time I'll get it because I'm trying harder and now I've grown and I'm wiser. But yes, may God help us. That's part of the growth process. But it's not in and of ourselves. It's from Him. He's the righteous one. And if we've been born of Him, He's going to help us practice righteousness. So, for us, do we relate with Him? Is He our life? Do we run to Him when we're in need? Is He our source? place where we know He's our Father. We can come to Him. Again, not, not because we've attained perfection, but because we're needy. And it's this awareness of our dependence on Him from these verses that again are the things that are to give us confidence because friends if our confidence is in our own perfection our own attainment our own righteousness our own purity then we'd all be shrinking back on that day because the standard is one that we cannot measure up to so the very fact that we know we don't measure up and we need to cling to him that's to be our source of confidence because it's not about us it's about the righteous one the pure one and clinging to him oh that gives hope because he is good enough he has accomplished it he has fulfilled the law so we cling to him not our own works not our own righteousness Abiding in Him is visible then by the fruit it produces. And these outward manifestations are simply the evidence that we are drawing our life from Him. We don't love primarily because there are commandments to do so, but because the One who made the commandments has given us a glimpse of His unfathomable love, the length and breadth and width of His love for us in Christ Jesus. We love because He has first loved us. We love because His love has rescued us. Love, righteousness, and purity, keeping His commands, these are not what qualify us for relationship with Him, but what reveals and displays our relationship with Him. They show the effect that He has on us. They're not the things that make us worthy to be loved by Him. No, it's our amazement that we are loved by Him that frees us to love those around us, to love Him in return. We love because He's loved us, not to get His love. 
Abiding in Jesus leads to confidence when He appears. So, so why does abiding lead to confidence? Well, in verse 29, John mentions that because God is righteous, anyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. And just the mention of being born of God seems to propel John into wonder and amazement. And in verses 1 and 2, we, we really get not necessarily what abiding looks like as, as much as we do the reality that makes our abiding possible and ultimately guarantees its success. We see that God loves us and made us His children. Let's read again verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. We should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He, when he appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Now, I don't know if John was building up a case here. That's just not the impression I get as I read this, as much as that he just mentioned being born of God and he gets caught up in marveling at the amazing love of God. Now, the marveling does serve to reinforce his point, but it just seems to come so suddenly that it just sounds like he's just, he just stops everything. Wait, see? See what? kind of love that the Father has given to us. Can you believe it that we should be called children of God? And that's what we are. He just seems to be amazed by this fact. In his old age, after walking with him, years of being a disciple, he just can't seem to still be comfortable with the reality that God has loved us so much that we could be called His children. I mean, that, that, that statement when Jesus would just call Himself Son, God the Father, that was enough for them to put a death warrant out for Him. That was not accepted in Jewish theology it was equating him with God. That, that idea that God was Father. You know, we throw the term around so casually. That just was not their experience. They were God's chosen people. They were his servants, a holy nation. But his children? Oh, my. That's a whole nother level of love and care. And John just seems to be undone. It's just like he was thinking about exhorting them to abide so they would have confidence when Christ comes and then realizes, you know, maybe I should make sure they know what abiding looks like. And then it just hits him. The love, the love of God. How can I even describe the love of God? That that God has made us His children that's what we are. That's so amazing. Do you get it? The search for confidence, John is letting us know, isn't about the question, am I doing enough? It's about who loves me. Loves me so much that he made me his child. You. You are. He says, God's child. You're not trying to be God's child. That is what we are. You're already accepted. So abiding is simply living out the reality that you're His child. It's allowing that to be seen in all of life. Applying that truth to how I go about my day. Practicing righteousness is living the reality that you've been born of the righteous one. You are loved by God. You have been made His child. 
That's where our confidence comes from. Second thing we see with why does abiding lead to confidence is because his children display his family traits. Every family has its telltale traits or characteristics. And we can see this easily enough with our own families, don't we? Some of these things are things that we're happy to see passed on, a particular disposition or character quality, a, a love for the outdoors, a sense of humor or a hair color or an aptitude for height. Whatever it may be. My daughter Ainsley comes by a love for the Steelers, honestly. It's one of those good things that's been passed along. Now, in our families, we also tend to pass along some tendencies that aren't so good. Things we'd rather stop a generation or two ago. It never come to us. Whether it's an unhealthy way of coping with problems or dealing with conflict, the short temper, receding hairline, or the Campbell nose, whatever it might be. But when God is the head of the family, there are only good traits to pass along. Not just good, the best. And so his family is identified, it's seen in things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Those born of him, getting their life from him, take on qualities of the family that they've been born into. We start to resemble more and more the family that we're in. Now, in our case, we started in the family of this world. And we fully displayed those qualities. We were born with those. And there are some that we're going to be trying to get rid of till the day that we die. So we don't yet perfectly display our new family. Because though our transformation begins immediately, John says here, it won't be completed until he returns Till he appears, till we see him as he is. And then, oh, then we'll be transformed and we'll be like him. It's not going to be finished until then. So as we abide and hope in the pure one, we purify ourselves and we reflect him more day by day, year by year. Becoming like him is progressive. We're not instantaneous all that we will be. John says. And even some of the things that you will be, it kind of seems to indicate we don't even know all that that's going to be. Some of those things we just haven't even begun to realize. Because he came and he showed us the glory of the Father and his coming, but there's only so much we could take. So much our eyes and ears could take in. And for eternity we'll be marveling at all that he is. Being amazed at how he has made us like him. Because it's not something we've earned, reserved. But that same amazement that John has here, we're going to have forever. And the fact that he would make us like him. That's our birthright. It's guaranteed. Our Christ-likeness is guaranteed from the moment we are born of Him. But like any child, it also is something that we, bit by bit, day by day, grow into. We see pieces of it more and more as we go. It's not all there yet. Being born into a family, though, doesn't mean that there is no commitment or work on our part to show our likeness to Him. Purifying ourselves as we hope in the God who is pure. That's not effortless. I mean, anybody who knows, who's tried to purify themselves different ways, even with the right motive of hoping in the pure one, it's work. It doesn't just happen. That's why it is gradual. It is progressive until we get there. 
It doesn't just happen in an instant. But it's our birthright. And it's something that all heaven collaborates in for our success. Now, as we read the passage earlier, we, we can choose to squander such a gift. You know, those, those that built with wood, hay, and stubble, it wasn't because their heavenly father ran out of precious stones or gold or silver. It's because of what they chose to build with. You know, gathering sticks and stubble may be a lot more convenient or easier than mining precious stones, refining gold. There's no comparison in the worth. The value that they hold, the convenience isn't worth it. same materials are available to all because all have been born into the same household. Practicing righteousness is not effortless. Loving God and neighbor is hardly ever convenient or easy. But they are possible because of whose family we belong to. Which also means that even though our practice won't be perfect and our purifying will still be impure, we will one day be completed perfectly when we finally see him with no more veil between us nothing to obstruct our view oh beloved we are god's children now already now and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is and that day we will be freed from sin no longer encumbered and entangled by the things that presently frustrate us in this pursuit of Him. Our confidence isn't in abiding perfectly, but in the perfection of the one whose family we've been born into. And one day, we'll be like. I'll just take the last few moments. There's one brief statement we've kind of just skipped over. John says, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. For his original readers, John was using this as as proof that they are His children, that we are His children. You know, is to be a sign. You know, the fact that they're rejecting you, they rejected Him too. You know, for those of us who are American Christians, that a phrase like this has held little reassurance because we just don't see that much difference. Opposition between ourselves and the culture that we live in. As we mentioned briefly last Sunday in relation to the Supreme Court's decision to redefine marriage, only God knows, but this may be about to change in different ways. If it does, this ultimately could be a gift to the church. Now, I'm not saying it's a gift we've been asking for. That doesn't mean it's not a good gift. If that's what he chooses to do. It's not a gift of comfort or convenience, but one that will take us where God wants us to go. One that removes the illusion of living in a Christian nation And instead gives us a renewed clarity of vision to remind us all of the mission that we have been given. If he does that, well, friends, that's a gift. If you're looking for ways, thinking as we go from here, how do we apply this? How do we walk out our birthright, visibly display who we are, who we are abiding in, Well, can I just encourage you, if God's put things already on your hearts and minds, go with that. Trust His Spirit to lead you and to guide you. But if nothing is quickly coming to mind, can I encourage you to consider the messages of unrace, disunity, and prejudice that we've been challenged with the past two weeks. Start there. Don't stop there. 
Take things like recent events. Consider the media, the celebrities, and the folks in your Facebook feed that have already started bashing those who hold a biblical perspective on marriage or any other topic. And do this. Takes last week's message and current events and our call to keep His commandments to love others and bring them all together in a study. Look at something like the Good Samaritan and ask, what does it look like practically for me to be a true neighbor to those around me? Those that I don't want to have anything to do with. What does loving God more than my reputation look like in light of recent headlines and water cooler conversations? Am I willing to love others more than my prejudices? How am I called to love others more than my favorite political agendas? How can I love others in the midst of their sin? No, we're not to excuse sin. We're not. We're to call sin, sin. But we are to love one another and those beyond our borders in the midst of their sin. After all, isn't that how we want to be loved? Come to think of it, isn't that how we are loved? Again, God didn't wait for us to get cleaned up before He decided to show His love and kindness on us to make us His children. It's through knowing Him, the pure one, that we purify ourselves. Not the other way around. If religious liberties do erode passages like love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, will have a whole other relevancy to us. Things we need to be thinking about now is will we abide in such a way that loving our neighbors will mean making sure the only thing offensive is our message. Not the way in which we bring it. Not attitudes that smell the high heaven of self-righteousness. Not anger or hatred that ensures that the truth of our words will never be heard. If our culture as a whole, not to mention our family members and our neighbors and our co-workers within it, insist on plunging into the abyss, may it not be because of a lack of love, a lack of abiding in Christ on our part. Charles Spurgeon penned over a hundred years ago, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and not let one go unwarned or unprayed for. What will His love compel you to do? How will our abiding be visible to those around us? What does practicing righteousness and purifying ourselves look like in our neighborhoods and in our Facebook feeds? These certainly aren't the only ways our abiding should be manifested, but Current events should at least inform us, at least be taken into consideration. Brothers and sisters, we have a birthright. We are children of God, loved by His fathomless love and destined to be made like Him. How is He calling you to show that reality? knowing that you are already accepted. Friends, walk as He walked, and we will have no need to shrink in shame at His appearing. Would you pray with me? Father,
how amazing that we can call you that name. How amazing that you would send your only Son to be crushed for us, to make us your sons and daughters. Oh, thank you that we have a birthright. That is too amazing for words. Just the part that we do know is beyond our comprehension. And yet there is more that is in store. You will reveal when you come. As we see you as you really are. As we are made like you. Lord, help us to live in light of that reality. That we are accepted. That we are your children. Might we show it? And Lord, would you give us confidence? I pray for each one here that you would help them to see growth, that you would have others that would point out in their lives things that they see. Would you help us to be a community that is caring for one another? When we can't see it ourselves, there are those around us that are, that are encouraging and shining light into the grace of what you are doing that we might all have confidence, not only on that final day, but this day, all along the way, would you help us to see the landmarks that point to your wondrous grace at work in our lives. In your great name we pray, amen.